0: Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, and we're going to read into chapter 4 and, and, and up, to verse, uh, up to verse 6. Sorry, Steph, I've said verse 5, or verse 6. And I'm going to read from the NIV this morning. It says this, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through the Father, to the, God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them, or as some translation says, angry and bitter with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters masters and everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry for their favor, but with a sincerity of heart and a reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. And there is no favoritism. That's an important line. There is no favoritism. Masters, provide for your slaves in what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open the door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. It's a great passage, isn't it? Mm. (laughs) It's a great passage. It's an awkward passage. We'll get into it. Have you ever had a Narnia moment? Have you ever had a Narnia moment? What I mean is, have you ever been somewhere and encountered a place where the inside exceeded your expectations of the outside. It looked totally different. So, for example, a number of years ago, me and Steph were on a work's do. We worked for the same engineering company, and we went to a work's evening do over in Harrogate in Yorkshire. Now, we had never been to Harrogate before, and it wasn't to the evening, so we thought we'd get there early on in the day, and we thought we'd spend the whole day in Harrogate to get to know this beautiful town. It is a beautiful town if you've never been to Harrogate. It's a really nice place. And inevitably, as the day went on, Tristan gets hungry, Tristan wants something to eat, and so we looked for a bit of budget grub, and we ended up walking into the local Weatherspoons that is at Harrogate. Now I'm not on commission for Weatherspoons, I just need to make that clear. Other chains and franchises are available, but when I walked into this Weatherspoons in Harrogate, my jaw literally dropped because it's set inside the old Royal Baths, and if you've never been, it is it is amazing. The inside of this Weatherspoons is breathtaking. To sign outside, said Weatherspoons, but inside, this was not like any Weatherspoons I'd ever walked into in my life. It was a Narnia moment. On the other side of Berrytown, Town, on Cork Street, if you know Cork Street on the other side of Berrytown Town from where our church is, on the other side, there's an old four-story industrial mill, and it's crumbling outside. It's not in the best of states, and there's a fire escape, sir, that I think you'd have to pay me to get me on. I think I'd, if there was a fire in that building, I think I'd risk the fire and climb these stairs. They look pretty dangerous. And yet it's still one of my favorite places in Berry, Because inside the husk of this old industrial building, there's four levels of video games. And if you've never been, if you've never been and stepping through the doors of this old building that used to be filled with industrial machines and now seeing it filled with arcade machines, well, it's a Narnia moment. It's not what you expect. And Narnia moments don't just only happen with places. Apparently, not that I've gone to see it yet, although I might, people are having Narnia moments with the new Barbie film. Apparently, the, the contents and the message of the film is not what you'd expect and you'd associate with the message that Barbie has generally been known for. It subverts it. I even had a Narnia moment eating a dark chocolate Kit Kat. I bit into it, and there was no wafer. It was all a solid lump of chocolate. That was a good day. That was a good day. It was a Narnia moment. Now, I call them Narnia moments because of that famous story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you know that story. And in that story, there's a little girl called Lucy, and she discovers an old wardrobe. And yet, when she goes inside the wardrobe, she understands, she discovers there's not a wardrobe. She enters a wardrobe, but it's not a wardrobe inside, but a whole new world, a different world. The contents do not match the exterior. They are radically different. You get get the idea. They're radically different. And so the idea of Narnia moments, if I hope that helps, I'm hoping it will help us understand what Paul is writing here and what he's not writing here, what he's saying and what he isn't saying, because these words have sparked a lot of controversy and have caused a lot of harm in the past when people have used them the wrong way. And so before we get into these words, I just want to remind us that in the passage prior to this that Helen talked on a couple of weeks ago, it's he shared with us. Paul is writing to believers who live in a city of Colossae. And he instructs them to strip off the old rags, the dirty clothing that does not represent who they are in Christ. And instead they are to clothe themselves in who they really are, their true and their new nature that they received from Jesus. And so rather from exhibiting self-asserting and self-dominating, sorry, self-indulgent behaviors that are harmful and exploited to other people, they should instead, Paul writes, demonstrate mercy kindness, compassion, humility, gentleness, and above all, if you know the passage, above all, love. And in the middle of all this clothing talk, Paul mentions status, because he's really talking about our, our identities. He's still talking about our identities. And Paul topples any notions of certain ethnicities or certain classes of people being superior to other classes and other ethnicities of people. In Christ, Paul says... It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, we are equal. We are equal. Christ is all that matters, and Christ is in all. That's what he says. In his letter to the Galatians, he says it a similar way. He says in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 27 to 28, he says, all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like new clothes. Like saying the same thing he is in Colossians. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, Male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying there's no longer any genders. He's not, no longer saying there's no such thing as British or Roman or Greek or African. He's not saying He's just saying there's no superior status. We are all unified in status. None of us are better than any others. He says a similar thing in his letter to Ephesians. He writes, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism... One God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. We're all the same. And he's consistent. Paul is consistent about it. this in every single one of his letters. In Christ, no one has inherently a superior nature or status or priority over and against anybody else. Amen? And when we get to these verses... Verses that flow right out of what Paul said about this clothing, this identity, and this status. And Paul starts talking about wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. Paul is not doing a U-turn. He's not changed his opinion in two sentences. Paul is not throwing out everything he's just said and reinstituting hierarchy of, of a superiority and contradicting all this one in Christ. He's not saying any of that. And I need to make this crystal clear. And this might upset some of us this morning. It might thrill some of us this morning. But I need to make this crystal clear from the start. Paul does not, in these verses, establish, and neither is Paul championing in these verses, institutions of slavery or hierarchical orderings of households. Let me say that again. He's not endorsing, he's not establishing, he's not championing institutions of slavery or hierarchical orderings of households. He's not applying approval or divine authority to structures of patriarchy or institutional racism. He's not. Again, in terms of status, the redemptive work of Christ is complete and conclusive. In Christ, there's neither slave or free, male or female, Roman, Jew, Gentile. We are all one. We are all one. What we need to remember, though, is that when Paul is writing this letter, he's writing to people who still live in the real world where the con- concrete conditions of their society still exist. let me explain that a little bit clearer. I'll make that a little more clearer. Right in the very second verse of this entire letter, in the very second verse of this entire letter, and I didn't touch on it in the introduction, Paul writes to one set of people who find themselves in two situations at the same time. One set of people in two situations at the same time. He writes to brothers and sisters in Christ and God's holy people in Colossae. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God's holy people in Colossae. Paul is writing to people who have new clothing, new identities in Jesus, and they level their relationships with one another. But when they became Christians, the fabric of Roman society didn't disappear. These people still live in the old wardrobe of Colossae. The cultural realities of the Roman Empire still exist around them. They live in the old wardrobe with their new clothing, if that makes sense. And so this group of Christians in Colosse was made up of people who were slaves in Colossae. They were wives in Colossae. They were children in Colossae, along with those who were husbands in Colossae and those who were masters in Colossae. And by the way, there was female and male masters in Colossae. It wasn't just all men. And they can't break out of those culturally enforced molds as much as they would want to. They are the molds of the society that they are in. They are in Christ, but the real world still exists around them. And sadly, the reality of Colossae was that there was patriarchy and there was Slavery. And again, and I'm going to say this several times this morning because I need to say it. So forgive me for repeating myself. Paul is not in any way applauding those cultural structures. He's not saying they are right. He's simply seeking to encourage Christians to put on Jesus in the realities of their lives. That's what he wants them to do. Put on Jesus in the reality of your lives. He's just told the Colossian believers in Colossians 3 verse 17 to represent Jesus wherever they find themselves. That in whatever you do, do it in Jesus' name. And in what follows, he's just answering the obvious response that he anticipates. Because the question that's going to come back is, how do I live out the reality of my identity in Christ in the broken reality of the world? How do I live my reality in Christ in the broken reality of the world? of the world. When I became a Christian at the age of 18, I became a new person. That was on a Sunday night. On a Monday morning, I still walked into my old job. When I went home as an 18-year-old, I still lived in the house of my mum and dad. I still had friends who were non-Christians. I still, And they knew the, the old Tristan, so that was really difficult to kind of angle as well. They knew the old Tristan, they knew how to talk to the old Tristan, and Tristan's still learning what the new Tristan's all about. I was still in the old world. Every single one of us is in Christ. We are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But the world is still the world. I mean, when I went to work, and I was 18, and I was a new person in Christ, then I could really have argued that I reign in Christ, because that's what Paul writes. on if we are, we are in Christ, we are co-heirs with Christ. I was still the youngest in the office now still making a bruise for twenty people. The old structures still do, and I had to learn how to wear my new clothes in the old wardrobe. Now, of course, in saying that, there are those when you read these words and they're disappointed with Paul. And they think Paul should have said more, and they think the early church should have done more to tear down these power structures and say something and do something. But that's a really unfair critique. Because Paul and the early church were not some dominant superpower within their culture. The early church was a minority. And there's no voting rights. There's not that. It's not that kind of system. And even Paul, he said when he writes this letter, he finds himself in prison. What rights does a prisoner have in Colossians to say anything? And more than this, that critique's wrong, because actually I think it's blind to how revolutionary Paul is in his verses. Paul's very revolutionary in his verses. And the early church and Paul might have found it hard to step out of the old wardrobes that the societies had them in. But using the freedoms they did have, Paul and the early church certainly changed the insides of those wardrobes to look like something completely different. They changed the insides to look different. And so against the backdrop of his own culture, these verses are really revolutionary. Because Paul takes the conventional understandings of these relationships and he plants in them Christian ingredients that are going to change them from the inside out. And we may be blind to it in our own privilege and our own freedoms today, and, but in these instructions, in these instructions, Paul actually pushes against any manifestation of domination. He pushes against it. And while it might not meet our sense of equality today, nevertheless, his vision for households unsettles and deconstructs any ideas of someone being superior. And he urges all people... To practice self-sacrificial cur. Love of one another. He does something so the contents don't look like the exterior. He does something so the contents don't look like the exterior. So I just want you to look this morning at Paul's approach, if that's okay. If it's not, I'm still doing it anyway. I want you to look at his approach. Firstly, you might not understand this, you might not see it. Firstly, in all three sections... And I'm going to focus on those tricky verses, verses 18 to uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Firstly, in all three sections, whether it's wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters, Paul addresses who the, who the person who is seen least in Roman eyes, the person who was seen as inferior in Roman eyes, he addresses them first. So the person in Roman culture had the least priority. Paul decides, well, I'm going to prioritize them and the person who was meant to be seen as more respectable and had the priority, Paul makes them wait and he addresses them secondly. Paul shows a special concern and a priority for those the world treated as subordinate. Secondly, Paul speaks to the lower person directly. He doesn't speak to them through their cultural superior. Need to notice that. He speaks to them directly. He doesn't treat them as if they are non-persons or they're just shadowy figures that only exist because of their boss or their husband or their parents. They are real people. And he addresses them directly as real people. They are his brothers and sisters. And they're not eavesdropping in on this letter. He's not expecting them to eavesdrop on this letter. They are part of the audience he is writing to. He expects them to receive this letter just as much as anybody else in the house churches that he's writing to. They are part of this. Everything he said about the status in Jesus, they are the audience of that as well. Thirdly, leading on from that, Paul speaks to those who are lower, and when he does so, he talks to them as if they have their own urge agency and as much freedom as anyone else. All right? In other words, Paul doesn't speak to them as if they can't make their own decisions and he can't make their own choices and that someone has to make those decisions for them. He talks to them, assuming and affirming that they have self-authority and self-ability to make decisions for their own lives. That's really important. you need to see that. Paul does not tell anybody in this letter with superior status to tell anyone of lower status what to do. Do you see that? Paul speaks to those that the Romans thought as inferior, and he speaks to them, even though Roman society might not have granted them this freedom, he speaks to them as if they have the freedom to make their own choices and act in their own way. That's huge. That's huge. Fourthly and finally, I mean finally in the fourth point, not finally in the sermon. In Paul's radical approach, I want you to see that when Paul speaks to those who are lower in status first, and he speaks to them directly, and he speaks to them affirming their freedom and their ability, he encourages them to do something. He encourages them to do something. But when he speaks to those with higher status, he prohibits them. He restrains them. He puts restrictions on them. So he lifts the lower, and he lowers the higher. In other words, he's making the last first, and the first last. And when you make the last first and the first last, there's no more last and there's no more first. Now admittedly, when you read these instructions, wives submit to your husbands, kids obey your parents, which I think is a good one, kids obey your parents. It's a shame my two aren't here this morning. I would have I've uh, been good. Slaves obey your earthly masters. I can understand that when you read those instructions, they may not see them as an encouragement to do something. And understand that it might seem as if they're granting rights to the superior, but they're not, all right? So they're not. So let's take a close look. So taking a close look at these instructions to wives and husbands. So I think that's the one that's on most people's minds in this room. And Steph's given me permission this morning to say this. So so first, looking at wives and husbands, when Paul says the word submit, submit does not mean, it certainly does not mean to become some demeaning, downtrodden woman. That's not what the submit means. In a non-military sense, which is what this is, because he's talking to households, not armies and generals, submission is having a voluntary voluntary attitude of cooperating. It doesn't mean subordination. It doesn't mean being under someone's instructions. It doesn't mean being made to do something. It means freely choosing to work with and alongside somebody. That's what this sense of submit means means. And when you look at it, if you want to know what the submitting is, and what the qualities of the submission is, then Paul's already listed them. It's about compassion towards others. And it's about humility towards others. And it's about not asserting yourself, and indulging yourself. If you want to know what submission looks like, then in verses 5 to 14 of Colossians chapter 3, that Helen looked on the other week, Paul's already listed them. He's already listed the qualities, the new clothing that he expects all Christians to wear. All Christians, not just wives, all Christians are to be compassionate, are they not? All Christians are to be humble, are they not? All Christians are not meant to be self-assertive, is that right? In Ephesians 5 verse 21, and you'll read a longer version of these household codes in Ephesians 5, before Paul ever says anything about wives submitting to husbands, before he says anything like that, Paul writes in Ephesians 5 then 21 to Christians, and he tells them to all submit to one another. That's often missed out when people quote the wives submit to husbands. Before he says it, all Christians submit to one another. That's what he's saying. All. All Christians. Not just wives. It was meant to be a mutuality in this submission to each other. We fold into each other. We're not fighting each other or fighting against each other. We fold in. We fold in. It's not one-way traffic. Paul's not expecting one-way traffic. And Paul is not saying and I need to make this clear, he's not saying that wives are to submit and everyone else can have their own way. Paul is not permitting anyone to have their own way. He's not encouraging anyone to assert their self over people. He's asking all people to work towards mutual self-giving. Because that's Christ-like. And additionally, it needs to be said, and I need to say this again, and I'm not going to apologize for saying it, Paul is definitely not saying that all women are generally subject to all men. That's a gross misreading. Again, Paul is asking all people, wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters, to submit to each other, to cooperate with each other, to work in unity, to be bound in harmony, as he said in verse 14, to be bound together. And more of this, more than that, sorry, Paul is certainly not instructing people to submit in all things only which is fitting in the Lord. Wives, children, and slaves are not to be the victims of every whim of a man, a parent, or a a master. Submitting to unkind, selfish people in degrading, servile way is not what Paul is asking for. There's no obligation in this passage to submit to foolish, manipulating, and abusive behavior. To do so is not fitting in the Lord. I don't think the Lord would want that. To do so is not pleasing to the Lord, as he says in 20. To do so is not working in the Lord because abusive behavior is not the work of the Lord. Does that make sense? Because people have often used those terms as if to say your submission is what's fitting in the Lord. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying the things you submit to, just the things that are meant to be fitting of who Christ is. He's just repeating what he said earlier in his passage. But you put your roots in Jesus. Abuse is not Jesus. So don't put your roots in that. Don't submit to that. And again, and again, and I'm going to repeat it several times, Paul is not encouraging subordination. He's not condoning domination. He's simply asking Christians, all Christians, to not be self-assertive and seek their own way over people. And it's the same thing in his prohibition to the superior person. In the Greek and Roman culture, you might have expected Paul to instruct husbands and parents and masters to rule their households just like Aristotle did, just like Plato did, and many other Greek and Roman thinkers did. You might expect them to do that, but Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't tell them to rule their households. He turns to husbands and he says, love your wives. Love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Don't be angry with them. Don't be bitter with them. He tells parents not to be overbearing on their kids. He tells masters to be just and fair. That's a real thing, that. that's, that's a big kicker. But the real kicker is he tells masters that they are not the masters. They are not the master. See, in Colossae, people probably thought they could do with whatever they want with people who were under them. It was their natural right, they thought, to assert themselves over others. They could treat people however they liked, especially the people who belonged to them. But Paul's unsettling response is, no, you can't. You can't treat people however you like. You can't treat people however you like. You're not the master. Jesus is. He's the master. See, it's telling in all of this, but the Paul never refers to the lordship of husbands. He never refers to the lordship of parents. He never refers to the lordship of masters. And he never places wives and children and slaves under their lordships. In every statement, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Everyone else is accountable to him including those who thought they were lords. Does that make sense? So in our household, and Steph's given me permission to say this this morning, I'm not the boss in my house. I'm not the boss. Steph's not either. Jesus is. Jesus is the Lord. And the idea is I'm meant to cooperate with my wife as we both work under his headship. Now, of course, there's times... When someone needs to make a decision, and when it's about food, it's normally Steph, because she's more healthy than me. And when it's about finances, it's normally Steph, because she's so much wiser on finances. I take a lot of persuading when it's financial. But Steph's so much wiser, and so much knowledge about it. But when it's other things, and I'm not sure what, uh, <laughs> but there's other things, and then Steph listens to me, because I've got a little bit more experience, and a little bit more worldly wisdom on it. I don't mean worldly in a sense of worldly, you know what I mean. But I've got a bit more. We just lean on each other. Who's the more expertise? But ultimately, we're cooperating with each other as one underneath Christ. I am not Steph's Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Does that make sense? Our kids, yes, we tell them what to do. They don't do what we want them to do, but we tell them what we want to do. They go to bed at a certain time. Yes, we put rules on them. There's a little bit of discipline in the sense of, no, you can't play a game past midnight. There's that kind of stuff. There's always that kind of stuff and they only eat what we eat and that kind of stuff and we eat together. But I've got to remember they're not my kids. They are my kids. but My parenting is underneath Jesus Christ's lordship. I don't want to break the will of my children. I want my children to be able to make decisions for themselves because there's a lot of pre-Apacia in this world, isn't there? And if I create a weak-willed child when I raise them, then they're not going to survive long in this world as a good person. They're going to fall into everybody's whim everywhere, aren't they? And so there's a way I've got to raise them. Yeah, there's times we tell them off. But I've also got to understand, if, I, if we tell them off too much, are we just going to do the red sin, as they tell us? Now, there's times when children wrongly accuse their parents of being tyrants. I've been there. We've switched the lights off at a certain time. Oh, We've said they can't have the internet for certain oh, and we're like we've become like cruel masters and we're horrible people who need to be overthrown. But ultimately they get it. They get it, we're not. But you can understand this. I hope my per- what I want is for our kids to see Christ in our parenting. Not just people wanting to have their own way over the kids. Does that make sense? Seeing all of this, Paul is revolutionary. We don't read it often. We don't read a lot because we read it from where we are. But Paul is revolutionary. He's not permitting anybody to be arrogant or domineering over anybody else. And again, to repeat what I've said, and I make no apologies for saying it again, Paul is not establishing. He's not reinforcing. He's not championing institutions of slavery or hierarchical orderings of households. He's knocking all the props out of all that domineering behavior. He's taking the old wardrobes of of Colossae, where Christians live, And he's planting in them values that will radically change them from within. And the result that Paul wants is he wants the surrounding society that whenever they open up these wardrobes that these Christians inhabit, that when they open them, the expectations of what they'll find there will be totally overturned. They'd have Narnia moments when they look at these Christian households. Because in a place of superiority, and subordination and self assertion, and people warring for that kind of who's the boss kind of thing, they would see actually mutual cooperation, understanding, humility, unity, and self giving love. He wants them to have Narnia moments. And so instead of opening up these wardrobes and seeing Colossae, they would open the wardrobes and see Christ. The contents would defy the label. He may open up the, the wardrobe of husband and wife. They may open it with their expectations of who rules the roost and who wears the trousers. But instead of finding a monarchy, actually they find two people walking alongside each other in companionship and love. They may expect to open up the wardrobe of slave and master with their expectations of domination and subordination, but instead they discover a kinship. Where slave and master see each other as brothers and sisters, a family where both slaves and masters curse one another and provide for one another. That's revolutionarily different. In the midst of the old wardrobe, they discover a new creation, a new world. A new world in the midst of the old world. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? The kingdom of God among the kingdom of people. Now, such an approach may seem weak. You might not think, well, that's not going to do anything. It's not going to be effective at all. However, I'm reminded of how Jesus talked about the kingdom of God when he compared the kingdom of God to a woman mixing in a little bit of yeast into a large batch of dough. And the yeast changes everything, doesn't it, if you know the story. A little bit of yeast inside a massive dominating dough still has the ability to make it filled with pockets of air. It transforms it from the inside out, doesn't it? Putting your teeth into bread, and you'll notice, putting your teeth into bread that's been made with yeast is a completely different experience from putting your teeth into bread that's been made without yeast. You can see that. And maybe that's Paul's approach from his powerless position because he doesn't have any power in the society. Maybe he knows if he can get the yeast of the kingdom of God into the dough of society, it will create pockets of divine breath within it. He's not endorsing anything. It's just simply the starting point he and the early church have. Does Paul expect these systems to continue? That's hard to know. I don't know. However, Jesus told another story about the kingdom of God, didn't he? He told a key story about the kingdom of God being like new wine in old wineskins. You'll read that in Matthew 9. The other one about yeast you'll read in Matthew 13. And what happens when you put new wine into old wineskins? The old bursts. And maybe Paul knew, and maybe that isn't expectation. Maybe Paul knew, or he does know, that living according to Jesus Christ's model for what human life looks like within the models of the structures of our society well, you can't do it without changing radically the relationships of the people you have within that society. The wineskins have got to burst eventually, because ultimately they cannot contain the new wine. And Paul's tactic I want to be honest with you this one Paul's tactics worked. Christianity has revolutionized our world. The seeds he planted has borne fruit. There's a historian and a sociologist called Rodney Stark. He's wrote a great book called The Rise of Christianity. Excellent book. Really good book. And he says that despite the modern denunciations of Christianity as patriarchal and sexist, he said it's easily forgotten that the early church was especially attracted to women. He writes that women flooded into the early church because they had an improved status within the Christian subculture of their societies. Their marriages were better. Children were better and better perfected for. And actually women, if you didn't notice, and I can recommend you a number of books about this, women were fundamental to church growth. I don't think the church would have grown the way it had if it weren't for women in the early church. In the late 4th century, there was a sole Christian voice, a guy called Gregory of Nyssa, who spoke out in a culture saturated with slavery, and he condemned the practice as evil and ungodly. He was a lone voice, well, the one that we have written, I'm not saying he was the only one, but he was was a radical voice in his time. Why did he do that? Because he knew what Paul was up to. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism in the 18th century, was one of the leading voices against the charge of slavery, of of, of American slavery and African slavery and European slavery. He he was against it all, and he spoke out against it and led the charge, along with loads of other people our Quaker brothers and sisters, that in the midst of the industrial revolution in our own country, when everything was getting big and better and production was amplifying and people were getting left behind and forgotten about, it was the Quakers within the industry that led the change in the law in making sure that we have acts of welfare that looked after our workers. Christians have changed the world. Or should I say, Christ and Christians have changed the world. And even our modern conception of human rights The reality is we wouldn't have any modern conception of human rights if it wasn't for the new wine of Christ. As a recent author, there's a great book called Dominion by an author called Tom Holland. And he says this, the idea of every human being possessed of equal dignity was not a self-evident truth in the Roman world. A Roman would have laughed at such an idea. He said the campaign against discrimination, however, was to depend on large numbers of people sharing a common assumption that everyone possessed an inherent worth. And the origins of that principle it did not lay in the French Revolution, nor in the Declaration of Independence, nor in the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. See Paul's approach fermented. And it's burst a lot of wineskins in our world. It's changed the course of history. Now of course the church isn't that clean. And the story's not always been that good. And it's not always been that neat. And yes, there have been those who found themselves in a position of superiority and privilege within their culture, who did not allow the new wine to reshape their relationships because actually it would have burst the structures that gave them that power. But I want you to know that such a behavior was not aligned with what Paul is teaching here, even when they used his words and misappropriated his words. See, Paul is not championing structures. He's championing Christ-likeness. He's not promoting patriarchy. He's promoting humility and kindness and selfless love. He's not condoning slavery. He's calling for justice. And if we misunderstand these words, then what we end up doing is we end up building the old wardrobes and refitting the old wardrobes instead of wearing the new clothing. And that's the wrong way around. And we have got it the wrong way around. There's a, a wonderful man called Frederick Douglass. He was an escaped slave from America in the 19th century, and someone who loved Christ. And he was right when he turned around and he said that the slave-holding religion of his land, in that slave-holding religion of his land, he recognized the widest possible difference between it and the Christianity of Christ. He said, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Those strong words, aren't they? See, Frederick Douglass could write that because he saw what Paul was getting at. Now I know I'll be accused of speculating this morning, but I don't believe Paul would disagree with Frederick Douglass. I think he would shout Amen at that. I don't believe Paul would endorse slavery. Paul never refers to anyone being his slave in all of the New Testament writings. He calls himself a slave of Christ. But he refers to others as his brothers and sisters and his fellow workers. And even in the final verses of this letter that I'm sure Helen will look at next week, Paul mentions an actual Colossian slave, a guy called Onesimus. And he's the subject of a letter called Philemon that's also in the New Testament. And he doesn't call him a slave. He refers to him as his faithful and much-loved brother. That's revolutionarily different. Again, Paul's not underwriting hierarchy or domination or self assertion in this passage. Paul simply wants the message of Christ, the words of Christ, the teachings of Christ that dwell among us to be embodied within our relationships to each other. See, as Paul has already said in this passage, if there's anyone who's supreme, who's supreme? Jesus. He's the greatest, he's the best, he's the highest. He is the fullness of God in the human body. He is superior to everybody else and the only one who has true supremacy, Jesus Christ. And yet in his supremacy, God does not dominate us. God does not assert himself. God gives himself. Or as a theologian called Marion Thompson put it, it's not a power that exerts itself over others, but it's a power that expresses itself in service for others. It's not grasping, but giving. Giving. It's not, it's not Sir Adel, Lord Alan Sugar. It's washing feet, isn't it? And so what's the takeaway from all of this for us? What's the takeaway from all of this for us? Well, it's not husbands going home and telling their wives to submit. If you've heard that this morning, you've not heard and you've missed the point. Your call, all of us, is to submit. That's the call. The takeaway that is all of us All of us this week will find ourselves in many different places. We're in Christ, but we'll also find ourselves moving from place to place in offices, in homes. When September comes around in colleges and universities and schools, we'll find ourselves in traffic this week. We'll find ourselves in cafes and restaurants. We'll find ourselves in our streets. We'll find ourselves generally in societies and in relationships. And in a sense, we're a million different people from one day to the next as we go from one mold to another mold, from one wardrobe to another wardrobe. And in some places, we may be somebody with a lot of power. And in some other places, we may be absolutely nobody with no power at all. But whatever the wardrobe is, wherever you find yourself, as Paul writes in First 6, chapter 4, be full of grace and seasoned with salt. In whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of, of Jesus, do it all to represent Christ and what He is like. So be gentle, be gentle this week, be kind, be patient, be forgiving. Yes, don't submit to abuse. Yes, seek the just to be just and seek to be fair. Don't be domineering, you have no right to be domineering, even if you're the boss of your own business. And above all, be loving. And let the peace of Jesus Christ rule in your heart. So to put that under the void, let the peace of Jesus Christ rule from your heart into the environment where you are. Let how you relate to those around you, let how you relate to those around you create Narnia moments. Be that fully solid lump of chocolate with no wafer in it. Be that old Turkish baths in, in, in the... In, in Harrogate, be, be that arcade club in an in, in old warehouse, whatever it is, whatever structures you find yourself within this week, let people catch a glimpse of the new creation. That's your call, that's your job. Or as Paul writes it in Ephesians 5, to all Christians, imitate God in everything you do, because you're his children. Live a life filled with love following the example of Christ.